Hi listeners, I'm Zoe. And I'm Madden. And you're listening to the Unnamed Doe Podcast. And today, I'm bringing you a case like we've never brought you before. Most cases, we have to wonder what happened to our does to cause their death. However, with this doe, we have no room to wonder. We know exactly what happened to her, but we still don't know her identity. This is the story of the woman in the wreckage, or more commonly known as Helen Doe. On May 14, 1991, a terrible accident occurred. A tractor-trailer truck, or a semi-truck, crashed into the back of another big truck. The crash happened on the southbound lanes of I-5 in Cowlitz County, Washington, right north of Kalama, Washington. There had been a large backup on the interstate that day, and the driver of the semi-truck wasn't able to stop in time. He slammed full speed into the back of the stopped truck. The photos from the scene are horrific. This was no small wreck. The crash is described as fiery, and that is no lie. Our source material has photos if you want to see what the wreck looked like. It was a horrible wreck. Pretty much nothing was left of these vehicles. In the semi-truck, there were two people, the driver and a passenger. Sadly, neither of the semi-truck's occupants survived the crash. Did the occupants of the truck in front survive? I believe so. Just not the ones that rear-ended? Yes. Okay. Yes. Now, let's take a moment to orient ourselves. We're in Washington State. As much as I want to travel to Washington, I really am not familiar with the geography at all. For all I knew, this accident was happening near the U.S.-Canadian border. So, Madden, I've pulled up a map to show you where this wreck is happening, if you want to go ahead and describe it to our listeners. It's actually right on the border with Oregon. So this is in southern Washington. It looks like maybe southwest Washington. It looks like I-5 actually kind of runs along the border of Washington and Oregon, which is separated by a river. So Kalama is right near that river. If it helps orient you, it looks like Kalama is pretty much dead north of Portland, Oregon. In relation to Kalama, we know pretty much where this accident happened. It happened a little north or like Northern Kalama. So I've said that this accident happened on I-5, like Interstate 5. And if that sounds familiar to you, it's because we've actually talked a lot about this interstate in one of our other cases. In our episode about the victims of Randy Kraft, he had a victim from Oregon, and that John Doe was dumped on Interstate 5. These cases are not at all connected. I just wanted to bring this connection back because we talked a lot about Interstate 5 in that episode. So if you haven't listened and you want to know more about Interstate 5, go check out our episode, More Than a Score, Part 2. Now let's get back to our crash site. The driver has been identified, but the passenger has not. When you told me that there was a passenger in the truck, I thought that was a little weird, but I know that some semi-drivers drive with a partner and they take turns or whatever. Like, they're partner drivers, right? Like, that's a thing. Yeah, and also semi-truck drivers just take people along with them on trips. I didn't know that, but that makes sense. I don't know if you're technically supposed to, but I know people who are truck drivers and take people with them. I guess I was just assuming that it was another truck driver riding with the first truck driver. I didn't realize that our passenger was the unidentified person. I really didn't know when they would come into the story. So let me tell you what we know about our passenger. Now, our doe is a biological female, and she was found 
pretty instantly after her death because it was an accident and first responders and law enforcement all show up right away. While the Doe Network states that she was not recognizable due to traumatic injuries, there's still a lot of information that could be garnered from her remains. She was estimated to be between 20 and 29 years old, about 5 foot to 5 foot 4, and 110 to 130 pounds. She had brown hair and her eye color is unknown for some reason. I want to take a second here and just mention that I think some of this information about what she looked like comes from witnesses who saw her in the truck, but I'm not 100% sure. I think it was confirmed by like a medical examiner, but I just wanted to throw that out there because some of my sources say that, but it's presented as facts in like the Doe Network and NamUs, so that's what we're going to go with. But there is even more information that we know about Jane Doe. She's estimated to be of Native American ancestry, and she had high cheekbones and a darker complexion. Now, Jane Doe had severe scoliosis, and her curvature was to the right. And for those of you who don't know what scoliosis is, here's your mini deep dive that you never asked for. Scoliosis is when a spine just doesn't form straight, essentially. (laughs) The National Institute of Arthritis and Musculoskeletal and Skin Diseases describes it as a, quote, sideways curve of the spine, end quote. Normal spines usually have like a little bit of curve to them, but scoliosis causes like an S or a C shape. And it's visible when you look at the back of an individual. You can often see it when a person is standing because their hips or shoulders are uneven. And when someone bends down, their rib cage will also be uneven. Scoliosis can have causes like genetics, hormonal changes, or cellular structure changes. But most of the time, it's idiopathic, which means that the cause is unknown. Scoliosis usually develops after age 11 or so, and it's more common in girls than boys. The type of scoliosis can range from moderate to severe. Sometimes a person can have scoliosis and not even know it because they don't have symptoms. However, some cases can be very severe where individuals require surgery to correct the curvature because it is naturally too painful or just gets in the way of individuals' daily lives. The fact that the Doe Network says her scoliosis was severe makes me wonder just how severe it was. I've met people who have had to have surgery for their scoliosis because it was so severe. (laughs) If scoliosis is too severe, surgery almost has to be completed to not only improve the individual's life, but to allow them to carry out their everyday activities. I just have to wonder if this Jane Doe had had surgery or if she was just toughing it out. I also have to wonder what their definition of severe scoliosis was when she was found. Yeah, that's also a good point. Because medical definitions change and shift, and so what was severe then might not be considered severe now. Yeah, that's a very good point. I'm probably just a little too focused on this because it's interesting to me, but I wish I could know more about her scoliosis. We'll move on from that deep dive that you never asked for and talk more about Jane Doe. Jane Doe's dental records are also available, and here's what I know about them according to the Doe Network. Quote, poor dental health and a slight gap in front bottom teeth, end quote. This, combined with the severe scoliosis, makes me kind of wonder if Jane Doe didn't have a lot of access to healthcare for one reason or another. I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. We've established before that dental care is expensive and not everyone can afford it or access it. But also, treatment for scoliosis can be extremely expensive. Depending on the severity, physical therapy, chiropractor visits, medication, braces, and surgery can all be involved in treatment. If she didn't have access to medical treatment, she might have also just assumed she had back pain. She might not have even known she had scoliosis. There might not be any record of her having scoliosis. Yeah. 
all of these treatments and medical diagnoses that have been placed on her after her death, number one, we don't know if she knew that this was happening, but all of those things would take money to fix and treat. And if Jane Doe didn't have access to resources like health insurance or if she lived in a rural area or community and just couldn't get to a doctor or a dentist for these things that she needed treatment for, I have to kind of wonder what she was going through. Now, there is another distinguishing feature that is listed on just NamUs. NamUs says that Jane Doe has a tattoo on her chest below her clavicle with the letter S. If you're unfamiliar with anatomical terms, your clavicle is just your collarbone. Now, the wording of this is really weird. Let me quote what NamUs says specifically. Quote, tattoo with the letter S, end quote. Does that mean that there's more to the tattoo than just the letter S? Or is that the whole tattoo, just the letter? I don't know, but I found this really strange. And maybe I'm making a mountain out of a molehill, but like, how can that be a distinguishing feature if I don't know exactly what it is, you know? I think it would almost have to be just the letter S. Like, the wording is confusing, but it wouldn't make sense for it to be anything else, I don't think. Law enforcement nicknamed this Jane Doe Helen Doe. Detective Sergeant Stacy Moeit of the Washington State Police said they gave her this name because they were tired of calling her, quote, unidentified remains, end quote. They decided Helen Doe would be appropriate since she was found so close to Mount St. Helen. Before we move on, let's talk about what Jane Doe was found wearing. She was found wearing a cowboy vest that was black, and she also was wearing a shirt that was gray and possibly had some pink on it. But this wouldn't be a complete episode if we didn't talk about the discrepancies in what Helen Doe was actually found with. According to a Facebook post made by the Washington State Police, Helen Doe was found wearing, quote, Levi's, a gray shirt, and a black cowboy vest with feather earrings, end quote. So I don't know why NamUs and the Doe Network don't have this information. They're actually, like, in consensus on this one for the first time in a long time. But they're out of consensus with the state police. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And normally, I wouldn't do this, but I'm going to trust that Facebook post because it's literally from the Washington State Police. Like, it's verified and everything with that blue check mark. And they're the ones who are actively working this case. But there is something to keep in mind. The wreck was horrific. It was explosive and fiery and just bad. The other truck driver said it sounded like a bomb when he crashed into it. So it's just very possible that her clothes were just so badly damaged in the fire of the crash. And all that was left was what NamUs and the Doe Network described. Like I said earlier, some of the descriptions of Jane Doe seem to be from eyewitness accounts, so maybe that's where it's coming from. Just keep in mind if you look into this case, you're gonna see that, but I'm gonna go with what the Washington State Police says. Now that we've laid everything out that we know about Helen Doe, let's look at her reconstructions. I'm gonna show you one that was created in 2014 first, and then I'll have you look at two updated ones from 2022. Maddie, can you go ahead and describe these reconstructions to our listeners who can't go check out our website and Instagram right now? The first thing that stood out to me about this reconstruction is the fact that she only has one feather earring in, which I assume is because we don't know for sure if she had that or not, so the artist played it safe and did one side with it and one side without. I didn't even think about that. I was really confused why there was one earring, so that makes a lot of sense. That's what I figure. I don't know that for sure. Her eyebrows are very different. One is really long and curved, and one is shorter and straighter. She has a chin that's much smaller than the top of her head. Her ears stick out pretty far away from her head, and I feel like her eyes are actually upturned. They're kind of almond-shaped. It's kind of a medium-sized nose. It's not particularly small or big. 
Her mouth is really small. That's one of the other things that really stuck out to me. It's a really small mouth. I don't know how much you guys know about facial proportions, but when you study art, it's one of the first things that you learn. And a general rule of thumb is that your eyes should be one eye length apart and the corners of your mouth should be about under your pupils, if that makes sense. And this drawing, it has that. The corners of her mouth go straight down from her pupils, but her eyes are so close together that it made her mouth really, really tiny. So I don't know, maybe she just had really close eyes. It looks like her lower lip is slightly parted away from her upper lip so that you can maybe see that gap between her two lower teeth, but it's kind of hard to tell. It kind of just looks like a white strip. You can't really tell what they're trying to highlight. Also, she does have a widow's peak. Like I a was pretty just about to say that. <laughs> it's like a pretty pronounced widow's peak, and her forehead's pretty tall, at least in this reconstruction. All right, I'm looking at the next drawings, and they're from 2022, and they're the same face, but two different hairstyles. So one has the hairstyle pulled back, and one has it down. Which her hair is pulled back into a ponytail because that's something that witnesses said they might have saw. Okay. So they wanted to do it both ways. And again, she still has that one feather earring in case she did have it in. Her lips and her mouth are a lot bigger this time, and her eyes are way further apart. And they're also smaller. I think her eyes are much narrower from top to bottom this time. Her eyebrows are a little further up away from her eyes, and they're a little bushier, and they're much more symmetrical. Her nose, I think, is really different. It's much flatter and smaller in this one. Like, that's a really small nose. One thing that I did notice is there's a really big space between the bottom of her nose and the top of her lip. So that's interesting. Maybe she had a really vertically tall maxilla, which is your upper jaw region. From what I can tell, she doesn't really have that widow's peak anymore. She was wearing clothes in both of these reconstructions, but I don't think it's what she had on. No. In the crash. I don't think it is at all. She had a black vest and a gray top on. Yeah, so they just drew her wearing, I guess, whatever they wanted her to wear. One other thing I wanted to note, all of these drawings were drawn with dark brown eyes, even though the eye color was unknown. So that's something else that's a little interesting. The only other thing that I'll add is her face isn't as narrow in the 2022 updates. It's not. It's a lot more like robust and more square. Now that we've talked about Helen Doe's physical characteristics, let's talk about the investigation for a minute. Helen Doe was the passenger in the truck, like we talked about, and the driver was able to be identified. He was identified as Lester Harville. He was a 26-year-old man from Missouri. The trucking company that Lester worked for confirmed that he was the one who was supposed to be driving the truck. But there was no record of him having a passenger. He was known to pick up hitchhikers and stuff, but I think he was supposed to report it when he had somebody in his cab with him, probably for liability purposes. Oh my gosh, a hitchhiker makes so much more sense. I was just having a hard time figuring out why she would have been in this truck with him. So what likely happened is that Lester picked up Helen Doe somewhere on his travels. Now, this is where the case gets really interesting. And you guys know me, I'm a geography person in these cases. And investigators were able to do something really, really interesting to track his travels. They used his fuel record receipts to track his likely travel route. He started in Villa Ridge, Missouri on May 7th, 1991. Then his next receipt is from another Missouri location, but they aren't sure of the exact name, but investigators think it was Concordia, Missouri, because I guess they can make out like the last part of the town name, but not the first part. He stopped there on May 8th. Next, he went to Lehman, Colorado on May 9th. 
Then he was in Rock Springs, Wyoming on May 10th. Then Boise, Idaho on May 10th as well. And then he stopped in Baker City, Oregon on the 12th. And finally arrived in Tacoma, Washington on May 14th. Man, this dude was traveling. He was all over the place. I know he's a trucker. I know that's what they do. But still, that's a lot of driving. Yeah, it's a lot of driving. He was all over the place. He wasn't all over the place. He was all over the... What do you mean he wasn't all over the place? Wait till I show you a map, Madden. (laughs) He was in Wyoming and Boise on the same day. Yeah. I don't know. That just seems like a lot. I just mean, like, he could have picked her up from anywhere. He was kind of all over the place. He could have picked her up in, like, five different states. Yeah. So that's kind of all over the place. Yeah, but, like, he had a route that he was going. Yeah, no, I didn't mean that he was just bouncing around (laughs) randomly. I just meant, like... You made it sound like he was all over the country. Well, he what? He went from Missouri to Wyoming and Colorado and Washington and Oregon and Idaho. Like, yeah, he was in the western United States. Like, he was driving west and north. Yeah, but it's all, like, in one route. I get that. But, like, I'm just saying that he could have picked her up from literally so many states. Yeah. Because even though he only stopped at these places, he drove through a lot more places. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when I say that he was all over the place, I just mean he covered a lot of ground. Yeah, and he did it in a pretty short amount of time. Yeah, that's what I was, like, amazed by. That's, like, a really short amount of time to do that much driving. I mean, he started on May 7th in the evening and ended up in Tacoma sometime probably in the morning on the 14th. So it took about a week. Now, Tacoma, Washington is where he dropped off his load. And I don't know what time he dropped it off. He was starting his route to Portland, Oregon, but we know he wouldn't make it to Portland. He was really close, actually. Yeah. At 2.45 p.m. near Kalama, Washington is when that fatal crash happened. Madden, I have a graph and map from the Washington State Police that goes over the information I have just given you. Okay, I'm looking at the map of his route first, and I do think it makes a lot more sense now. It does look like more of a straight shot than I was picturing. I was kind of picturing him bouncing back and forth from state to state, but he really wasn't. He was driving pretty consistently. I don't know why I thought this was like an erratic route, but I did. (laughs) I was like, that's so not time efficient. What was he doing? (laughs) Now that I'm looking at the chart you gave me, I see what you mean about that second stop that was possibly Concordia because all they could make out was R-D-I-A. So like, (laughs) Erdia. Erdia. But there were at least four letters in front of that. One interesting thing about the chart is that all of his stops are timestamped except the one in Tacoma, Washington when he actually dropped off his load. And that's the one that I think for sure should be timestamped because that's like your receipt that you completed your delivery, right? I don't really know. I mean, they used fuel receipts for the other ones and that has a timestamp of when you pay. So maybe this was just kind of unorganized with his load drop off. I would think that the company would have some sort of record of that, though. I would too, but I don't know. Hmm. I also have to wonder what he was dropping off and where, because this was the 90s. If it was a business that was receiving semi-loads, they probably had CCTV, and probably they had it in their loading docks. Most places do, you know? Yeah, I didn't even think about that. I'd be really interested to see if Helen was in the truck with him at the time of the drop-off, or if he picked her up after that. 
That's really, really interesting. I think gas stations also at this time probably had CCTV. That's really interesting. I wonder if they looked into that. I have to wonder if they've pulled all that footage or not. Yeah, I bet it's not around anymore, though. I bet it was taped over before they got there. If you want to hear a deep dive about CCTV or surveillance footage, go back to our Found on the Rocks episode. We did a huge deep dive about it there. But just to remind you, a lot of footage either gets taped over after 24 hours or companies just don't keep it for that long. Most places don't store this footage for a long time. It's more for like short-term use, which can really hinder investigations. So I wonder if that's the case by the time they track down all these fuel receipts. Yeah, because I don't know when they did this timeline tracking. I don't know if that was something they did originally in the investigation or if it's something that happened much later on. Yeah, because this could have been a modern endeavor by a cold case team. Yeah, I just don't know. In which case, that footage would not have survived. And obviously, we don't know the exact route that Lester took. Like, he could have taken back roads or something like that. Like, we don't know. Yeah, because we know where he stopped, but we don't know where he went in between those stops. Right. And there's a few stretches in that drive that are just kind of weird to me. Like, why did he fill up so close together in Missouri? I kind of found that weird too. And then the other one I thought was weird was he filled up in Idaho and Oregon, but those are really close together too. Yeah. So let's actually break that down. He went hundreds of miles without filling up and then maybe less than 100 miles sometimes. It's kind of strange. I have to wonder if maybe he was stopping for other stuff like drinks or bathroom breaks or cigarettes or what have you and just happened to fill up while he was there. Like, oh, I don't want to stop again at 200 miles. I'll fill up while I'm here. That's a more reasonable explanation, I think. I've done that because I'm like, I have three quarters of a tank, but I'm stopping anyway. I'd rather not stop again soon. So I'll just fill up now. Like just stop off my tank. No, that's a good point. I didn't even think of that. So it's also reported that he traveled through Utah. It's not mentioned in the gas receipts, but he had to have gone through Utah, I guess. Okay, I saw that on the map and I couldn't tell because it's kind of a low res map. But I was like, I don't remember there being a stop in Utah, but this map shows him driving through Utah. I guess he had to have gone through Utah to get where he was going. I don't know exactly. The first leg of his trip was from Villa Ridge, Missouri to Concordia, Missouri. And these locations are only about two hours and 45 minutes apart. It took Lester a day between these fill-ups. Like almost a complete day passed from the first fuel receipt to the second fuel receipt. But they were only two hours and 45 minutes away from each other? Yeah. Weird. I know, right? The next leg of the trip was from Concordia, Missouri to Lehman, Colorado, and it's anywhere from eight hours to nine hours, and it's about 570 to 619 miles apart. Initially, I thought this stretch of the journey was weird because I've actually driven this stretch of road before, and I'm pretty sure I had to get gas in between. So this led me down a rabbit hole that I'm going to take you guys down to. Apparently, semi-trucks get like 6.5 to 7.5 miles per gallon, but their tanks usually hold 500 gallons of gas, or diesel more specifically, and that can allow a trucker to go 1,500 miles on a tank of gas typically, which I was not prepared for. That's a long haul. And maybe my sources are wrong, but I kind of saw that echoed everywhere. Like these gas tanks hold like 500 gallons of gas because they've got like two gas tanks. This also was the 90s, though, so you have to wonder fuel efficiency back then versus now. Yeah, that's true. 
I just, I was really blown away by this. So I guess this distance isn't really that long, but then that really makes that two Missouri stops very confusing. Maybe he took off with just enough gas to get to Concordia, slept in his truck for the night, and then got gas in the morning and took off. I don't know. It's just weird. It's strange. These gas stops are weird. Yeah, but maybe we're just looking too much into them because this is a true crime podcast and we think the worst in everything. Yeah, and I mean, this guy's absolutely not on trial. We don't know anything about him. Oh, absolutely not. No. We're just trying to figure out his journey because he could have picked up Helen at any point. Yeah. My thinking and why I wanted to dive so deep into this is because could he have gone really far off this path and still ended up on these travel routes? Like, could he have taken detours, like taken a, quote, scenic route or something and picked her up somewhere in the middle of literally nowhere? That doesn't even seem like it's on his route. Yeah. This is why I did all of this deep dive on the geography, because I wanted to know. Anyways, let's move on. Lehman, Colorado and Rock Springs, Wyoming are about 416 miles to 475 miles apart. The drive can range from six to eight hours, and those fill-ups were a day apart. Next is the stretch from Rock Springs to Boise, which is 482 miles to 517 miles and about a seven to eight hour drive. Then he drove 128 to 133 miles, about two to two and a half hours to Baker City, Oregon. The same day, right? No. From Boise to Oregon, those fill-ups were two days apart for two to two and a half hours of a drive. It seems like his shortest drives are the ones that he's spending the most time between, which makes me think he's got to be taking a different route than that shortest one. Unless he's just having a weekend or something. Maybe. Maybe he was taking some free time. I don't know. I mean, I'm not a trucker. I don't know. I don't know. It's just weird, right? Like... If we have any truckers out there, like, let us know if we're just being really weird and, like, hyperfixating on this. <laughs> so, finally, he drove to Tacoma, Washington from Baker City, Oregon, which is about six to six and a half hours and 391 to 438 miles apart. And then between Tacoma and Kalama is only 106 miles and a little over an hour and a half apart. The total distance of this entire trip is about 2,261 miles, and it would take about 33 hours nonstop. And it took him a week to complete that trip. And I said all this to say that Lester covered a lot of ground in those couple days, and we have really no idea where he could have picked up Helen Doe. He could have taken routes that we don't know about. This is just an estimated route of where he drove. He could have gone other places and seen other things and picked her up kind of anywhere along that route. It does seem most likely that he picked her up in Missouri, Kansas, Colorado, Wyoming, Utah, Idaho, Oregon, or maybe even Washington. But I'd like to point out that even though Helen Doe might have been picked up by Lester in one of those states, that does not at all mean that is where she's originally from or where she could have gone missing from. We really don't know anything about where Helen Doe was originally, so she could really be from anywhere and picked up anywhere. I believe sometime shortly after Helen Doe was in the crash, she was buried in Longview Memorial Park and Cemetery. Detective Sergeant Stacy Moate said that she believed that the trucking company Lester drove for paid for her funeral and burial plot. Hmm, that's really nice. Yeah, it really is. I did see some pictures in my source material. She would stay in that unmarked grave in Longview Memorial Parks and Cemetery for years. But even though she was laid to rest, no one forgot about Helen Doe. 
Detective Sergeant Stacy Moate said that there was a detective on the force that wanted to find out who Helen Doe was before he retired. Helen Doe wasn't forgotten. So decades after the crash, detectives still wanted to work the case. They still wanted to find out who Helen Doe was. So they did, and they haven't stopped since. Normally, this is the point where we talk about theories, but honestly, I don't really have a lot. I didn't find a whole lot thrown out online because we know what happened to Helen Doe. We know she was in a horrific accident that ended her life. It's just we don't know how she got there or who she is. That's up for debate. There was no report of her being in the truck, nor, I guess, were there any forms of ID with her at the time of the crash. The no forms of ID with her is kind of strange to me because she was estimated to be in her 20s and possibly her late 20s. And by that point, you usually have some sort of state-issued ID. So this kind of makes me wonder if maybe she was transient or homeless and was hitchhiking from place to place, which would also be supported by the fact that maybe she didn't have access to medical care. Yeah, and also getting an ID does cost money. And you have to have certain documents, which can cost money. Like you have to have your birth certificate. And if you can't get back to where you need to get your birth certificate, you have to mail it, which costs money. And if she was homeless or transient, she might not have had the resources or access to get that. And she might not have had a residence to put on your state ID. If you don't have a residence, how do you get a state ID? Anything could have caused Helen Doe to end up in Lester's truck that day or days prior. Maybe she had run away from home years prior and was trying to hitchhike back. Maybe she was trying to escape violence in a relationship or relationships in her life. Maybe she was just simply trying to get from point A to point B and ended up in this tragic accident. And here's the thing, we say this a lot and you're probably so tired of hearing us say this, but we just don't know. And it's so hard to speculate because we have no idea. I mean, we literally don't even know when she got in the truck with Lester. I mean, we have a general idea of the state she could have been in, but that's it. You are more than welcome to speculate however you see fit, but this is where we're going to kind of leave it. As far as this case goes, there's so little information that we're not going to be responsible for putting out something that's probably false and totally unsubstantiated. Now, let's talk about some matches. She has been excluded from being Tina Finley from Benaway County, Idaho, Andrea White from Humboldt County, California, Martha Evians from Clatsop County, Oregon, Kelly Sims from Callitz County, Washington, Barbara Cotton from Williams County, North Dakota, Emily Ballantine from Washington, Barbara Strabinski from Washington, Nuyet Fong, I hope I pronounced that right, please correct me if I didn't, from Snohomish County, Washington, and Angela Hammond from Henry County, Missouri. Unfortunately, I don't have a ton of matches for you today. I did my own searches on NamUs, and I wasn't very successful, and I looked through a Reddit post, and most of the matches that were thrown out were ones that I saw on NamUs and kind of brushed past because something didn't quite fit. I do have one possible match, but I think it's probably still unlikely. You can let me know what you think. The possible match I'm going to be presenting for you today is Martha Bell Cadeso. Martha went missing August 15, 1985 from Anadarko, which is located in Cotto County, Oklahoma. And that's pretty much all I know about her case. I do have a description of Martha, so before I give you that, let me give you a brief recap of what Helen Doe looked like. Helen Doe was about 5 foot to 5'4 and 110 to 130 pounds. She had brown hair, high cheekbones, a dark complexion, poor dental health, a gap in her front bottom teeth, scoliosis, and was likely between 20 and 29 years old. 
She was of Native American ancestry, and she had a tattoo with the letter S. Now, Martha is estimated to have been between 5'2 and 5'7 and 120 to 140 pounds at the time of her disappearance. Okay, so those things are matching up so far. Yeah. She has black hair and brown eyes. She is also enrolled with the Comanche Nation. Madden, why don't you compare the photo of Martha to the reconstruction of Helen Doe? I think Martha looks more like the original reconstruction. Her face is more narrow and her nose is kind of the same shape as the original one. The thing is, she doesn't terribly look like either of these reconstructions, but, you know, reconstructions are just reconstructions. It looks like Martha has really downturned eyes, like very downturned eyes. The bridge of her nose is really close to her face, like it scoops down and then the tip of her nose kind of flares out again, and it's a rounder tip of her nose. I feel like she has a bit of a rounder face. I don't see that widow's peak, but that widow's peak also wasn't present on the newer reconstructions. Overall, I don't think she looks that similar, but that doesn't mean that much. Yeah, we've seen how wrong reconstructions can be. I wish we had more information about her disappearance. She did disappear a long time before Helen Doe was found. That is the first problem that I see with these cases. Martha went missing in 1985, and Helen Doe was in the crash in 1991. That's a six-year difference, which doesn't completely discount the match. Martha was also 28 when she went missing, which would have made her 34 when Helen Doe was in the crash, which is kind of out of the age estimation, but we know age estimations can be wrong, so... Yeah, a little older, but once you get into your late 20s, they're kind of indistinguishable from your early 30s. Yeah, it's not that different, but it doesn't discount this match. There's just no biological markers that happen, like, when you turn 30 versus 31 or anything like that. Yeah. Now, Martha doesn't have anything mentioned about poor dental care, scoliosis, or a tattoo on her page. I did see some mentions of her teeth in an online forum, but I don't really know what was distinctive about it. It kind of just went around in circles and nothing really came of it. I will say Martha's mouth is open in her picture and you can see her teeth, but I don't see anything unique about them. I mean, that doesn't mean there weren't fillings or something weird about them, but I don't see anything. Helen Doe's distinctive teeth were like in the bottom part. Other than her poor dental care, she had the gap in her lower teeth. And we can't see that in Martha's picture. So all of those things together kind of seem like enough to make this match not work. This is where I really see this theory fall apart. I found this on Web Sleuth, so just keep that in mind. But Martha, I think, had two daughters, and they're still fighting for her to be found today. With that said, I really don't think Martha would have just left her life behind. I don't think she would have left her daughters behind. Ended up in Missouri and then hitchhiked to Washington with some trucker and was in that fatal crash. For her to cross paths six years later with the trucker, yeah, a lot of things would have had to have happened and she would have had to basically fly under the radar for six years. Yeah. And we don't know really anything about Martha's life. Like, we don't know her personality. We don't know if running away from her life would have been something in her character. I feel like oftentimes that's not in somebody's character, especially when they have children. Could Martha be Helen? Sure. Is it likely? I don't think so. Martha has no exclusions on NamUs, so the only way we'll know for sure is through an exclusion. Unfortunately, like I said, Martha is the only potential match that I'm bringing you today for Helen Doe. 
There are truly lots of missing indigenous women, but Helen Doe had some pretty distinguishing features and none of that was echoed in the matches I found online. Sadly, I think this means that Helen Doe is not in a central database. If she's in a missing persons database, it's not one that I have access to. I don't know if she was even reported missing to begin with, and if she was, the files could have gotten lost, or she just simply never was reported missing. Anything could have happened. And this brings up a really, really huge issue that I could not just sit by and not talk about. And that's the issue of missing and murdered indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit individuals in North America. It's actually extremely alarming when you look at the statistics. For example, according to the U.S. Department of Interior Indian Affairs, a 2016 study from the National Institute of Justice found that four in five indigenous women are likely to experience violence in their lifetimes. That's a whopping 84.3% of indigenous women. That totals to about 1.5 million indigenous women experiencing violence in their lifetimes. That's horrible, insane, and a huge issue. Furthermore, Native American and Alaskan Native women all have higher rates of murder, rape, and violent crime than the national averages. If that doesn't make you angry and uncomfortable, it should. It should. Because that's insane. Here is a startling quote from the U.S. Department of Interior Indian Affairs website. It says, quote, When looking at missing and murdered cases, data shows that Native American and Alaska Native women make up a significant portion of missing and murdered individuals, end quote. But the thing is, they don't make up a significant portion of the population. So there's no reason they should be making up this much percentage of the victims of violent crimes. It's disproportional. Exactly. And that's where the issue is. This is not me just making an issue. This is a serious issue. And it's a well-documented issue. Yeah. These women, girls, and two-spirit individuals are all at such a higher risk for violence than most people. And this is just what we know from the reports that are given. My source says that not every violent crime is reported by these women. That's very true. So literally, it could be so much more, which is horrifying. My source literally says, quote, less than half of violent victimizations against women are ever reported to the police, end quote. Is that for women in general or indigenous women, do you know? I think the statistic applies to all women, but this still applies to Native American women. This is such a serious issue that people don't know about. We tend to get caught up in missing white woman syndrome or just giving more media attention to missing white women than others, specifically people of color, and it has a negative impact on these missing and murdered indigenous women's cases. But I just wanted to mention that we have to do better as a society to advocate and protect these indigenous women. If Helen was never reported missing, it's likely her DNA will not match in a system. This is why we share these stories. It only takes the right person hearing a case to break a case open. I literally just saw a positive identification yesterday that a tipster came forward after years and the doe was identified and the murderer was caught because a tipster came forward. Guys, sharing these stories makes a difference. You listening every week makes a difference, especially to the cases that don't get the attention that they deserve. We have to take action to fight for these does. Now, to get back to Helen's case, let's talk about what can be done next. We mentioned this earlier, but Helen Doe's dental records are available. She didn't have fingerprints taken, which could just be because her body was really damaged in the fire. She died in 1991, so DNA was in the forensic crime space. However, it wasn't until 2014 for DNA to come into play. 
In January 2014, Helen Doe was exhumed to try to get a DNA sample. I think they succeeded because the Doe Network says the sample is available, and I saw that she just hasn't been matched to anyone yet. I have to wonder if investigators have done any investigative genetic genealogy or just put her sample into CODIS. 2014 was a long time ago in the world of forensics. It's time to maybe try a new technique. Maybe get a new sample even, if it's necessary. I'm not sure, but I know that things can be done to help identify Jane Doe from a DNA standpoint. In 2014, investigators also contacted a forensic artist named Natalie Murray to do forensic facial reconstructions. She is who created the reconstructions that you'll see on our Instagram and website and that were described in the episode. Murray said her original sketch was more general and based on the basic skull. However, in 2022, she was asked to update the reconstructions, which she did. This time, she said the sketch was, quote, more individualized to the specific skull, end quote. Like I said, we know that Jane Doe is exhumed. If DNA hasn't been successful, I think isotopes should be tried as well. Isotopes can tell us so much about where a person is from and where they lived. If Helen Doe traveled a lot in her life, or especially in the last part of her life, isotopes can help tell that. I think isotope testing is a great next step. Also, we've talked about this before, but what about forensic pollenology? We know pollen is really resistant and can survive a lot. I don't know how well it would hold up to such a brutal crash and such a fiery crash, but I know some of her clothes seem to have survived. Using this and isotopes together could help construct a geographical timeline of where Helen Doe had lived and visited during her life. I don't know exactly how this would work, I'm kind of just making this up. I think isotopes and forensic palynology could really give information about Helen Doe that could lead to her identity. Also, I know this is probably a long shot, but I wonder if Lester's family and friends were interviewed. Maybe he called someone and said he picked up a hitchhiker and gave some information about her that could be identifying. If not, maybe investigators can try to reach out to any of his remaining friends and family and see if they remember any phone calls or letters or anything from that time. I mean, it's probably a long shot and I'm sure investigators have done that, but why not try, you know? Now listeners, I've presented a lot of information for you today. I've presented so much information about Helen's case. I've also brought up a really intense topic about missing and murdered indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit individuals. Helen Doe's case is crazy, and it's not as crazy as some of the other cases we've had. She was in a tragic accident and lost her identity that way, but she still deserves to be identified. And listeners, I brought up a huge issue in our country, and it's up to all of us now to raise awareness for this. It's very likely that Helen Doe is part of the missing and murdered indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit individuals. And we have to make sure their cases and her case don't get lost in the shuffle of other cases. Helen Doe might be her name for now, but I refuse to believe that will be her name for all of time. If you have any information about Helen Doe, please reach out to the appropriate authorities. We will have them listed on our website. Also, if you have any information about the disappearance of Martha, please reach out to the authorities. We will have their contact information listed as well. And if you haven't visited our website yet, it's theunnameddoe.com, and our Instagram is at theunnameddoe underscore pod. And if you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to share us with your friends and family. It really helps us get these cases out there and gets these cases one step closer to getting to the individual who needs to hear their case that can help break it wide open. And if you feel so inclined, be sure to leave us a review and follow our podcast wherever you're listening to us at. And if you guys are loving these episodes and you want more, head over to our Patreon, which you can access at patreon.com slash the unnamed doe podcast or using the link in our show description. 
Our subscription is just $5 a month, and a portion of everything we earn from the Patreon goes to organizations fighting to solve these cold cases. So you do make a difference as a patron. Also, if you ever have a question about a case, a case you want to hear, or a theory, you can let us know. You can DM us on Instagram, you can fill out the contact submission form on our website, or you can just straight up email us at theunnameddoughpodcast at gmail.com. We actually had a listener suggested case that we're going to be doing soon, so stay tuned. And just know that we do want to hear from you guys. With all that said, thank you so much for joining us on the Unnamed Doe podcast today. We'll see you next week. This podcast was researched and written by Zoe Reese. All editing was done by Madden Delaney. Our theme music was created by Zoe Reese.